let's um, open our Bibles to see, uh, this morning to the passage that I announced, uh, 2 Corinthians in chapter 8. <coughs> and I want to read um, verse 1, and then we'll make some explanation to bring us up to speed on the, what he's talking about here. <coughs> 2 Corinthians, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 8. In verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. And the idea here is that he's writing to this church in Corinth, obviously, that um, was actually a somewhat wealthy church. You've heard me expound or talk about this before, but... uh, never gets old for me because it's such a great uh, a great story. In order to understand what's taking place here, there's we have to have a broad view of what's take uh, of what has happened here and what's where the apostle Paul's headed with this. He started off this kind of grace giving actually started off as a benevolent giving. Benevolent gift it was he approached some churches because there was a great need uh, in the church at Jerusalem. You'll recall that the church at Jerusalem, of course, it was a local church. And it was from there when the persecution came in Acts chapter 8 that the believers were scattered. and They went everywhere preaching the word. And it was because of that that the church at Antioch uh, came into being. And, of course, we see, as we were talking in Sunday school, we see in Acts chapter 13, uh, the New Testament uh, principle of New Testament missions modeled so clearly there. But hard times came to the church in Jerusalem, the original church. As a matter of fact, there was a dearth that had taken place there. And um, there were some other reasons, perhaps part of the reason that they were Uh, in such dire straits may have been due to the fact that they had a communal type situation there. You recall that um, they were, people were selling things and bringing it uh, to the apostles. And the Bible says this, makes this statement that they had all things common. It would be from the word common that the idea of commune or even communism would come. Point to be taken is that the scripture is not teaching that communism, you know, it's not a biblical thought. Matter of fact, it, in order for something to be a model, one of the requirements of it is, the characteristics of it is, it has to work. <laughs> and this didn't work, as communism is not going to work anywhere it's practiced. But anyway, the church of Jerusalem ended up in very dire straits to the point in the place where they needed relief financially. So Paul went to some of the other churches that had uh, been planted, and he made an appeal to them. And what he would do is he would present this need to them, and then obviously from what we see here, he would give that church a year to come up with whatever it was that they said they were going to do, whatever amount they were going to contribute to the church at Jerusalem for the saints. And he went off then from, well, he passed through Corinth, and they became involved in this as far as making a a commitment. 
and he went on to other churches, and he gets over to a region that we read about in the scriptures called Macedonia. And it is there that he runs into an what he found. on both sides of the city. It was on an isthmus uh, there in Greece and the ships would come from both directions and they would be offloaded there and their cargo would be transported over land and then reloaded on ships and those ships would go on their way to their point of uh, commerce where they would, the stuff would be sold. As a result of all of that traffic back and forth, there was several things that happened. Of course, you might imagine there was a great uh, induction of different ideas there in regarding religion. There were many ideas that uh, became prominent there. One of the other things was that the wickedness of all of the cultures of the world seemed to find good soil and, good, and would take root there. And it's believed that that is the reason that the Corinth church, Corinthian church, was such a troubled church. We know it was a very worldly church. We knew we know that, for instance, they weren't big on church discipline. Uh, we know that Paul addresses the issue in the book of 1 Corinthians of a man that was living with his father's wife. It would be actually this man's stepmother. And he was living with her as his wife. And it must have been something that was general knowledge, but nobody would deal with it in the church. And Paul wrote to them to say, that uh, he needs to be dealt with, and if he doesn't respond to your uh, advances to him to get this thing right, he's to be put out of the church. And we, we, what we find in Second Corinthians actually is that he apparently did respond because Paul instructs them in Second Corinthians then that he is to be received now back as a brother. And the obvious uh, implication there is that he fixed this problem. And... Uh, Obviously, no more living with his uh, stepmother. Well, when Paul gets over to this region of Macedonia, they're not a rich church. Matter of fact, they're a poor church. They're very poor. Not only that, they're being heavily persecuted. And of all things and of all places, you would not expect that this would be a place where any kind of meaningful offering would come that Paul could take it back and help relieve the saints in Jerusalem. And yet that's exactly what did happen. As unthinkable as it might be, these churches of Macedonia took upon themselves the burden and the care for their Christian brothers in Jerusalem. What happens is that Paul sees the benefit of this, and after they get this problem in Jerusalem taken care of, he shifts or swings this kind of giving from a benevolent type offering over to a missions offering. And it is from these churches then that Paul and we would assume some of his associates derive their financial support for the work of missions. And it literally becomes the model for New Testament missions and what we, what we call faith promise giving or missions giving. And of course... It's not the only way to give. Some churches give a particular percentage of, of uh, their general offering. Um, and there are you know, 
other churches would hold special events or fundraisers, I guess, to raise money for missions. But if we're going to, if we want to really be biblical, we'll find out something. That when we do the New Testament principle here of, of faith, promise, giving, or we might call it grace giving, and the reason I say that is because of what it said in verse 1 there. It says the grace, if you look at it again, the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. And so what I want to say first of all to you is that giving is a grace. It's something that God graces us with or he gives us the ability to have the grace to give. And so I want to just alleviate your fears today. If you are of the opinion that, yeah, I thought this was going to be about money. Oh, my. Keep your money. God doesn't need it. God is interested in gracing some people in a way in which they can give for the worldwide enterprise of getting the gospel to the lost and dying of the world. I first met Rob Smith and his wife, Sarah Jane, when they were juniors in, in college. In those days, they were in their early 30s, and they already had their family started. And so because of their age and their growing families, I knew from the very beginning it was going to be a struggle for them to gain even minimal financial support to go to the mission field. They had been called to the city of Bathurst in New Brunswick, Canada. Now, if you don't know anything about the geography of Canada, New Brunswick is over in the east. It's one of the maritime provinces. It borders right on the Atlantic Ocean. And if you go to the northern part, you'll find a little peninsula sticking up there, and that's where Bathurst is at. And it was going to be their expensive thing, and I felt like they were going to have trouble getting their financial support. When they got to Bathurst, they found out that they had miscalculated the cost of living and that their support was inadequate. And they suffered all during their first term as a result of that. It's interesting how that people don't want to listen to the old man of the mission that tries to steer them as to what kind of things they need to do and the kind of money they need to raise. They often think they know better, and sometimes they do. Not usually, but sometimes. But um, So they suffer all during their first term. Finally, it comes time for their furlough. And um, they... Uh, we're looking forward to raising some much-needed support. But just prior to this, the uh, government, Canada Immigrations, sent them a letter that stated that they had overstayed the conditions of their visa, and they were to take all of their belongings and immediately leave Canada. Well, on the drive back to Tennessee, the engine of their tow vehicle blew up, they were faced with, not only had they been kicked out of Canada, but they're, now they're faced with a huge were most discouraging, I can assure you. But I'll fast forward to today. Today, they're back in Canada. They have adequate financial support, a newly rebuilt truck engine, and by the way, that whole vehicle by this time has been replaced, even though it when I wrote this 
They had a newly rebuilt truck engine. Rob rebuilt it himself because he used to, he felt he could do that. He was qualified. He used to build uh, stock car engines. But I don't know what happened, why this engine didn't last. Maybe it's because he didn't know, to, didn't know how to do anything with stock parts. He had thought he had to have a high lift cam and dome pistons, I suppose, and didn't have that. So the engine didn't last. But anyway, uh, the vehicle's been replaced. They have a church building and a property that is debt-free. In Canada, that is something very, very significant. But on top of that, and more important than that, they have a good nucleus of people. Um, and for five years now, they've had a faith promise program that contributes significantly to um, worldwide missionary effort, actually. I think it was probably three years ago or four years ago going there and uh, introducing the faith promise principle to the Canadian believers there in Bathurst. And uh, they saw the principle, they got involved in it, and voila, a uh, wonderful uh, addition to uh, the pool of resources that are available to missionaries to get to the field. I said all that to say this. And it is because of churches like this. Now, you all don't support the Smiths, Rob Smith. But it is churches like this that produced this church on the field. And it will one day become, as we were talking about in Sunday school, and in both an indigenous and an autonomous church. But the point is that this plea that we make for missions giving, for the faith promise uh, program of Lighthouse Baptist Church here in Rollsville, North Carolina, is not a plea for ourselves. None of that money, not one penny of it, administrative purposes, pastor doesn't get any of it, uh, nobody gets any of it except that it is all set off to the mission field, all of it. So what it becomes, first of all, notice that it's not something for ourselves, but it is also something that is an investment in something that matters. And I say it's an investment because it produces dividends, not to us, but it produces dividends because these churches that are planted, when they get involved in, in grace giving, then they contribute to the as I said, the pool of resources or the pool of money that's available then for missionaries to go to to try to tap into that that they can get to other places. And you've heard me say before, and I, I boast about it, I guess, because I'm so thrilled about the, uh, the churches in the way up in the Arctic that we've got one church there. They support 24 uh, missionary uh, endeavors and missionaries at the tune of $200 a month. Another one of our churches is a smaller church, but they support for 300 a month. And uh, their attitude and their mentality about it, their philosophy is they'd rather support fewer missionaries at a bigger amount, and that way they can have, uh, it's more personal for them when they get a missionary to come. They've made a, con you know, a considerable investment in that guy's ministry. And so <clears throat> the question that I want to ask this morning is in the remaining few minutes that we have, other than that, other than this idea of reproducing ourselves, and, and listen, 
if we if missionaries will go to the field and and run their ministry the way we were talking about in Sunday school this morning, then we see that it's a it's an investment that just keeps enlarging itself. If if that those churches that are planted will also plant churches that will plant churches that will plant churches. This thing becomes at you know at some point it's going to become exponential in its uh, uh, in its importance and in the difference that we're making in people's lives. Now I'm going to guess that there may be some of us here this morning that are thinking, tempted to think at least, what possible difference can this little local church in Rollsville make in the face of almost 8 billion people in the, upon, upon planet Earth now? And when it, you know, even perhaps more important question than that is, what possible difference can I as a member, by the way, if you're not a member of the church here this morning or you're a visitor, I don't know that there's any visitors here today, but understand that we don't do this every week. This happens one time a year. And it happens by on purpose because pastor and the, and the church uh, and the leaders, the men, design on purpose to have a missionary conference to challenge ourselves. I'm throwing myself in there in the mix but to challenge ourselves for this business of, of missions and the difference we can make. I could give you testimonies, many testimonies this morning, of people that have been affected by uh, the Faith Promise Program of Missions because a missionary was able to be sent. A missionary went there, got saved. I mean, uh, we hope the missionary was saved before he got there. But the people that he preached to got saved, and they were discipled. And some of the everyday things that come into the lives of people on the mission field and the testimony that they have are just absolutely wondering and spine-tingling. Uh, it's just so wonderful to see that, uh, that, listen, the Holy Spirit can be trusted with the souls of people. Did you know that? And that we can trust the Scriptures to do for them the same thing that it did for you and I. And it's just wonderful to see that uh, people the world over, their skin color may be different, their culture is going to be different, their language may be different, and so on and so forth. But Christians, if they're taught biblically from the Bible, you know, it's just uh, Christian people are Christian people are Christian people. And it's wonderful to see the and to, and to feel the camaraderie that I, as a visiting preacher to several, you know, many different mission fields around the world, whether I'm in Russia, Romania, or wherever I would be, uh, the camaraderie that I feel because of the difference that has been made because of churches just like Lighthouse Baptist Church that have made an investment in the missionaries, people got saved, and um, as a result, a church was built, and uh, the testimony continues to go on. So I want to talk to you, and I'm going to have to go quickly. I won't get through the lesson, but it's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven point message. So I'm just going to talk to you briefly about a couple of these, about what does grace giving or faith promise giving or missions giving, what does it do? Well, first of all, uh, look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 8. And Paul says, I speak not by commandment 
but by a kid. In other words, he's saying, I'm not commanding you to get involved in faith promise giving. I'm not commanding you to, to, to be involved in grace giving. But by occasion of the forwardness of others, and look at this, and to prove the sincerity of your love. And then I want you to look also at verse 24, um, where we read, um, he says, uh, Wherefore, show ye to them and before the churches the proof of your love and of our boasting on your behalf. And the point that tried to be that, that I think Paul is coming to and trying to make here is that you can tell somebody you love them, I mean until the cows come home. Is that something that's just said in Ohio, or do you all say that down here too? Until the cows come home, you know what that means, right? All right, so um, you can tell somebody you love them, I mean like every day, but if you never give them anything, they're going to begin to question your love. You say, where do you get that from? Well, from the best known verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And so because God loved mankind, he demonstrated that love by the giving of his son, actually God coming in the flesh where he... uh, God took upon himself a fleshly body that he might be like man and that he might die because God is eternal. God is a spirit. His spirit cannot die. He had to have a body in order to die. So he took upon himself a body that he might die. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave. And so I can say to my wife every day, and I say to her every day, I love you. And I heard an old preacher say one time, you ought to tell your wife, fellows, you ought to tell your wife that every day. And if you've just had a fight before you go to bed, just talk about that island out in the sea. I love you. I love you. You're not getting it. Must be a local colloquialism up in Ohio or something. But the point is this, that I say that to my wife every day. Why does she believe that? Well, it's because every once in a while I give her something. We had our, it was interesting because we had our 50th wedding anniversary. We've been married 54 years now, but when we had our 50th, uh, we were headed back to the mission field, and we were going to actually celebrate uh, our 50th anniversary on the mission field. And so I had bought her a gold, that's, that's the golden anniversary, right? You're supposed to buy your wife gold, something made out of gold. And so I had saved my money for over a year, and I had uh, bought her a gold bracelet, cost $950. And I've got this thing, and I've got it in my luggage, and I get to the border, uh, we we were flying back, I get to the border, and the Canadian border guard says, do you have anything to declare? My wife's standing right there beside me, and I want this to be a surprise, right? And so I said, uh, yes, I do. And he said, what is it and, and what is its value? And I said, I re- and, and they're, they're real, they don't like this. But I leaned over and I said, it's a, it's a wedding anniversary gift. And I turned to my wife. I said, could you go stand over there for a minute? And she looked real weird at me, and she did. And I said to the guy, it's our 50th anniversary. That's the golden anniversary 
and I've got her a golden bracelet, and it's worth $950. And you know what he did? Now, we're only allowed to take back across the border on any particular visit $250 worth of goods. So that means that it's going to cost me $700. I'm going to have to pay duty on $700. And you know what that man did? He said, go ahead, no charge. And it was up to his discretion to do that. So anyway, we get up there. April the 12th rolls around, our anniversary, and I present my wife with this golden bracelet. And uh, I want to tell you something. It spoke volumes to her that I'm not just saying to her, I love you, but she was able to understand that I, that I did love her because I gave. Now, that's just a little personal example. Excuse me for, for the person, personal thing there. But I think you get the point, that you can say something about I love you, but if we don't ever give, then our, really, in the back of our mind, there's always the question, I wonder if they really do. What, what Paul is saying here to the church at Corinth, now you've said a lot of stuff. You know, now it's time to put your money where your mouth is, if I can say that without upsetting anybody. Um, or we might put it this way, talk is cheap, okay? Now he's saying to them, it's time to give. And he said in verse 1 of chapter 8, I want you to take, take notice and look at the grace that has been bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia. So the first thing that grace giving does, it proves the sincerity of your love. Secondly, it multiplies your seed sown. Now look at chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 10. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 10, it says, uh, Now he that ministereth seed to the sower. All right, stop for a moment. And I want you to tell me, according to what Jesus said in a parable, what is the seed? The seed is the word of God. Now watch what he says here. Now he that ministers seed to the sower, both minister bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. So the first thing it does is it multiplies, or the second thing it does is it multiplies your seed sown. What's that talking about? Well, what that's talking about is that multiplication is a lot better than addition when we come to this thing, right? And so if I am personally witnessing to somebody that's a, and they get saved, that's addition. But if I support a missionary who goes and he reaches a group of people, a, a, an ethnic people group, and plants a church, and that church has you know, gets involved in this, and they plant a church, maybe over here and over, because they support a bunch of missionaries as well, that's multiplication. And he's talking here about, in, in, in that verse, he's talking about that he that ministers seed to the sower, so that's God that ministers the seed to the sower. I'm the sower. Both ministers bread for your food. There's two things. He's going to meet my need, but he's going to multiply my seed that's sown. And so multiplication is better than addition. And the point being taken there that it multiplies our seed sown. Uh, and there's a, listen, there's a verse in the Old Testament, the book of Haggai, that asks a pretty good question. Haggai 2.19, it says this, is your seed yet in the barn? 
And so what I sort of think about that is, you know, I get into a good many churches, and most churches, almost all of them, they've got a thing called a track rack. And they've got all these tracks in there. And I've noticed that I've been back to some churches, and those are the same tracks there with dust on them. If the seed is the Word of God, and that track has the Word of God in it, that's the seed right there in that track rack, only the seed is yet in the barn. And the point to be made here is, that's just a little picture that we can't keep this truth of the gospel inside these four walls. The seed is in the barn, but we need to take the seed out. The seed isn't made to be kept in the barn for, forever. You know, uh, when I grew up on the farm, uh, 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 Brother Byler, you'll attest to this, that uh, in, in what we used to call a bank barn, that's uh, one side of the barn is up on a bank, you know, so you can get in on what we call the barn floor. And there was usually double sliding doors on the barn, and you would roll these doors back, and you would walk in on what we call the barn floor. It was made out of heavy beams, and down underneath is the straw shed or the milking parlor and all that kind of stuff where the animals lived. But you kept the hay there, but over on either one side or the other, either the left side or the right side, there was a thing called a granary. And that's where, when you harvested the grain, some of it, if you had a big harvest, you could sell off the excess, but you put in there what you were going to use for feed for the coming year and what you were going to keep for seed for next year's planting. And what we would do is we would put, we would put in, in our place, we would always have a special plate for our seed, our, our seed grain. And we would keep that and all winter long. And when it came time in the springtime, when we planted our wheat in the fall because we raised winter wheat, but we, when it came time for planting, we would take that seed grain out. We would take it and have it cleaned and have it treated so that the, uh, the critters, the um, uh, insects and so forth, didn't, didn't eat it and it didn't spoil, and that's what we planted. Now, guess what? You can have all the good intentions in the world that you, that you want to by bringing that seed in there, but if you don't plant it, nothing happens and there's no harvest. And that's really what this is all about. It's about having a harvest. Do you believe in the harvest? You know, do you believe actually in getting the gospel? You say we say we do, but... Are we practical about it? We say, I love you, but are we giving to that, to, to that end? And so I, out of my seven points, I've got to two of them. I don't know what we'll do about the rest of them. But let me give you something here that I found about a great missionary, David, David Livingston. And it speaks to the idea of not keeping the seed in the barn, but living it in such a way that others can see it. How many of you have ever heard the famous saying, Dr. Livingston, I presume? You heard that? All right, let me tell you this story. In 1858, David Livingston, who was already world famous, returned to Africa to find the source of the Nile River. Um, he reached the southern end of Lake Tanga, Tanganyika, or whatever, uh, in the year 1867, and moved toward the interior of Central Africa. Then he dropped out of sight and wasn't heard from for a few years. And in 1868, 1869, the New York Herald sent a man by the name of Henry Morton Stanley 
on an expedition to find Livingston. After many hardships, and it took him five months, Stanley finally did find the missionary on October 28, 1871. At that point, David Livingston was 68 years old, and he stayed with him until March of 1872. Incidentally, Livingston died just a year later. But his time, Stanley's time with Livingston had a tremendous impact on Stanley, so much so that he wrote these words. In 1871, I went to him as prejudiced as the biggest atheist in London. To a reporter and correspondent such as I, who had only to deal with wars and mass meetings, political gatherings and sentimental matters, uh, 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 and, and political gatherings, sentimental matters were entirely out of my province. But there came to me a long time of reflection. I was out there, away from a worldly world. I saw this solitary old man there and asked myself, how on earth does he stop here? Is he cracked or what? Was it, uh, what is it that inspires him? And for months after, uh, we met, I simply found myself listening to him, wondering at the old man carrying out all that was said in the Bible. Leave all things and follow me. But little by little, his sympathy for others became contagious. My sympathy was aroused. Seeing his piety, his gentleness, his zeal, his earnestness, and how quietly he went about his business. I was converted by him, although he had not tried to do it. And the point to be made from here is that here was a man, David Livingston, so sold out for the cause of Christ, and even at the age of uh, 68, or he died when he was 70, he just turned 70 when he passed away. But here he is, still converting even, even other Englishmen. Actually, Stanley was from Wales. But um, here's a man that gets saved because simply of the life of David Livingston. It doesn't appear that Livingston necessarily preached to him or at him, but his life emulated the, 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 the character of Christ. Stanley saw Christ in Livingston. And so the point that, I mean, it, it, his, his, his pores exuded Christianity and Christ and the principles of the scriptures. And now listen, to pastors already said it this morning. I said it the other night. This church supports some great missionaries. You really do. And, uh, you know, I, I, but one is you don't support back here. I see that you've had uh, Brother Levine here. And uh, he's, he is. I've been told by people that know the most gifted linguist alive upon the world today, in the world today, the man speaks 30 languages. He would be about 35 years old. If he walked into here today, you would just think he's just a common, ordinary person until he came behind the pulpit and began to teach. And the stuff just comes out of him. And your other missionaries are like that. They are great people. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, 
that the overflow of the blessings that God has poured out upon us, we need to do something with that. And, you know, I'm thinking of, um, I'm thinking that, I don't know how you are, but the Bible says that the windows of heaven shall be open and I'll pour you out a blessing such as there's not room enough to receive. And we think, well, I've given, that's never happened to me. Well, maybe you're like I am, but I can't figure out where all the junk comes from at my house. Anybody else have that problem? I mean, I go down in the basement and I see stuff stuck up in the rafters. And that's, it was because of that. And, you know, in the garage, I'm, it's good that I can get a couple cars in the garage. There's so much stuff out there. And I don't know where it comes from. It's just we acquire it. It just happens. You know what I'm saying? And so that's what I was talking about when I said I had some stuff that I sold on eBay. I have to sell stuff to get rid of it. I am so blessed, you know. And um, it's sort of like, you know, I, I know some of you people don't, maybe don't like, uh, like this kind of talk, but um, it's sort of like what a wonderful thing it is to know the Lord as Savior and to be invited to partner with him and to just be a part of, uh, of what he's doing. It's wonderful. Um, I'm not the type that has to have expensive things. Barbara and I live simply. Our house is only average, maybe even a little bit below average for the area where we live. Um, but it's sort of like, uh, it, well, in this area, you would probably, the older folks would probably recognize the name of B.R. Lakin. How many recognize that name? He was an old radio preacher from the South, and he was called the Voice of the Appalachians. Now, people don't know better call them the Appalachians, but they're the Appalachians. And one day, somebody said to him, he was preaching about giving, and somebody came up to him afterwards and said, Dr. Lakin, that's my understanding that you drive a Cadillac. And he said, no, he said, that, that isn't true. My wife drives a Cadillac. I drive the town car. And um, now he maybe had more expensive taste than I do or more expensive taste than you do. I don't have to have a town car. This Ford that I've got over here is just fine with me. But the point is we are so blessed in America. We don't even know how blessed we are. And yet there are people in the world tonight who are without the, the most basic thing of all of, of life. They're without the truth of the gospel. And we have a chance to make a difference. You think you're not making a difference in the face of, of, of 8 billion people? I'm telling you, if you could hear the precious, precious testimonies of the people in the churches that, you're, that your missionaries are planting, you would know that you're making a difference, at least in those lives. Amen? So let's think about this as we consider next week the importance of filling out that faith promise card and let me encourage you to do this. Stretch your faith. Don't just do what's comfortable, but do what is going to stretch you and just see if God doesn't bless in such a way that maybe even next year you can do even more because it's such a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to be involved in God's work, God's business. Let's pray.